I'm going to report to the computer and then I should be fine. Sorry. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start over. I'm Rachel and this is my sister, Jen. Hi everyone. I'm Jen. And we're two sisters health. Two sisters health. I'm a sociologist. And I'm a physician assistant. And we're uh, interviewing Gurpreet Prada. Did I say that right, Prada? Gurpreet Prada, yeah. And uh, of course, we want you to tell us about you, but we've you know done a little research and it looks like you treat many things, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like pain, you're kind of a pain specialist and through that maybe have also become really adept at treating addiction. Yeah. So what I am is I'm an interventional pain physician. So I use procedures and medication to help patients who have severe unrelenting pain. And in the process of working up my patients over the last 25 plus years, um, I came to some conclusions that didn't seem to make perfect sense. Um, and they didn't make perfect sense with respect to how we traditionally treat patients. Um, usually if you come in and you have chronic pain, we're going to do MRIs, we're going to do imaging, we're going to do electrodiagnostics, EMG, we're going to do injections, we're going to give you medication. And then we're going to assume that you get better and voila, there you are. But that's not what really happens. And, and so when I started to figure out why the treatment durability was poor, by treatment durability, meaning you treat somebody, but they still have symptoms and their symptoms come back or they don't get full resolution. Um, that's what I was trying to figure out. And when I did that, I realized that many of these patients had severe systemic metabolic inflammation. Um, and at the same time, we were entering into this opioid epidemic. And I kept wondering, what's, what's the deal with these people getting hooked on opiates and overdosing and dying? Uh, and at the same time, I was observing that my patients had a lot of poverty and yet were really, really overweight and they had pain. And how could it be that somebody that didn't have so much money could get so overweight? I mean, I thought you had to like eat stuff to get overweight. And so how is it that people with not a lot of money were massively overweight and had systemic metabolic inflammation? And so that's, that's what kind of led me down the line of treating these three areas that at first looked distinctly different, but in reality are all the same. Mm -hmm. And were you finding that the outcomes were really spectacular when you started treating these things together? Yeah, um, we found that the outcomes were a lot better. Um, and what that means is that we're able to get patients and we're able to get to root cause problems for them. Um, and so let me, I'll give you some statistics. Right now in the United States, about 13, 12 to 13% of the US population is healthy. That means that 88% of the US population is sick metabolically. That's the vast majority of patients. I practice in the urban core. The urban core is a socioeconomic demographic of less money and more minority-based population with more African-American and slightly more Hispanic and less Caucasian, but certainly less money. And what I find is that the urban core portions of it have become economically destitute. Uh, and when they became economically destitute, those people that were in that area 
no longer can climb the vertical ladder of, of, of the great American dream. They're stuck and they get redlined into being stuck in, in that economy. It's the same thing for rural communities though. So if you're in a rural community and you don't have access to all kinds of cool stuff and you don't have access to diversions and you don't have access to um, good economics and good jobs, you're also stuck. Um, and so what we find is that both communities, urban and rural, end up um, getting a lot of subsidized food. And we subsidize about 40 to 60% of the food in the United States. And when we subsidize that food, um, we industrially engineer it to be extremely calorically dense and have no nutritive value. Uh, we, you know, we use extrusion techniques and with heat processing, we remove the vitamins, we, we take all the, uh, the saturated fat out of stuff, and we end up with heat uh, shelf stable substances that are filled with vegetable oil. And those shelf stable substances filled with vegetable oil never rot. And the human palate is such that the human palate loves the taste of vegetable oil. Um, even if it's rancid, it's even better for us in our, in our palate. That's what we think it tastes better. So we end up consuming a bunch of vegetable oil and something called acellular carbohydrates, which is food without, um, food with basically a bunch of sugar and all the nutrition's gone. And so we end up with, um, a milieu of, um, becoming metabolically inflamed. Hmm. So that's kind of where we're at in that mix. So I work in primary care in a very rural area um, in Northern California. And I find that it's, you know, chronic pain, diabetes, obesity, uh, depression, anxiety, all of these things are really complicated and common. How do you address all those conditions at once and also get your patients to um, follow the plan of care? So we do a couple things. Um, one of the most important things that I do is I engage the patient in having them understand. Um, I had to change cameras because I got frozen. Okay. So I, um, one of the things is I have them understand what's causing their symptom. Um, and kind of engage them in the, the, the behavior that they thought was okay, but it's not. And so what that means to the patient is I re-educate them on breakfast is not the healthiest meal of the day. It's not the most important meal of the day. It'll make you hungry for the rest of the day. You don't have to eat from sunup to sundown. You'd probably only need one or two meals a day. You don't need to eat a bunch of snacks. Um, and so I spend a lot of cognitive time with them with protocols that are designed for them to understand where we're starting. If I can reverse their metabolic inflammation, then I can start addressing their pain. I can start addressing some of the other things. Now, I, I, mentioned, addic I mentioned addiction. So addiction has a slightly additional concept. Addiction is a neuroinflammatory response um, to a drug that we took. So the historic model of it is um, 
I'll give you the historic model and then we'll kind of go through that because I think that's that's relevant. The historic model is that I, I put a rat in a cage and I have him suck on a bottle of water with morphine in it. And then the other side of the cage, I let him suck on water. The rat looks at the water, looks at the morphine water, keeps drinking the morphine water till he's dead. And we say, oh, that right rat died of addiction. That's a model of addiction, access to drug and the use of that drug to achieve a hedonic drive and to get dopamine. And unfortunately it causes respiratory distress and then the rat dies, voila. Well, that's one model, but that's not the real model because that's what we started with. And what we found out was during the Vietnam War, um, when we had GIs returning from Vietnam, we knew that a lot of them were using heroin. They were using hashish and they were using heroin. And there was a large number of people that said, hey, when these GIs come back, they're going to be so hooked on heroin that we're going to have zombies walking around these streets. So this is going to be a problem and we have to be very careful. Well, lo and behold, when they came back, their addiction rate in the United States was no higher than the general population's addiction rate. So what happened? They were addicted in Vietnam, but they came back to the United States. They could still get the drug, but they didn't take the drug. So what happened? The issue it turned out was that it was a factor of loneliness. They, they were profoundly lonely. And the way that they wrapped themselves up in the blanket of society was to take this drug. So addiction is the neuroinflammation from the dietary intake plus the loneliness that one sees. And then unfortunately, right now, our drugs are so potent mm -hmm. that a small dose of drug taken by a lonely person who inadvertently overdoses is gonna cause immediate death. And because the drug dealers are, you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a macroeconomic problem because the great opium war in China, when Britain tried to open the borders of China in, in the southern provinces of China and fed the Chinese nationals opium and got them addicted, Chinese are doing that to us now. They're feeding us with fentanyl. And that fentanyl is so strong that even if it aerosolizes where they manufactured it in, in China, the people in that community die because it gets aerosolized. They, they end up dead. Well, they send it through through Mexico, and now we end up in, with it in the United States, and micrograms of it are sufficiently strong enough um, to, to cause us respiratory arrest. It's so potent that you really have to look at it as um, almost like a, a weapon of mass destruction, because you can turn these into little microbombs. That's what the, the Soviets did in, in, the, um, in the theater issue that they were having. They, they had a bunch of terrorists take over a movie theater and they decided to drop fentanyl bombs in to get them. But unfortunately, the fentanyl bomb blew up and it killed all of the hostages, too, uh, because it worked so fast. So I mean, that's, you know, so it's, it's a combination of the drugs have gotten a lot stronger um, and we have profound loneliness. And then we have this underlying milieu of metabolic inflammation that keeps people from making rational, appropriate decisions. Um, and that's really taken off since probably the late seventies, um, with the dietary guidance changes, when we started to go away from saturated fat and pushed more into, uh, consuming carbohydrate and vegetable oil.
Do you so that's, see that's that global. changing? Dr. Pada, do you see that that's changing some lately that, um, you know, the shift to more carbohydrate with all, you know, the diets that are so popular now, keto and um, do you, I'm sure that we have a long way to go, but that's probably one of the main things you counsel patients in. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of a, a jerk when it comes to that, because the reality is, is there are no vegans in India and I'm from India. We have vegetarians, but you got to realize the vegetarians in India um, eat butter, they eat saturated fat and they eat a lot of it. Um, and Malhotra did a study. It was a railway study and he, he showed that individuals in India, large railway study um, were the railway workers that ate saturated butter and even ate meat did way better than the pure vegetarians. Um, and so I encourage my patients to get as much high quality protein, which includes um, animal product. As humans are heterotrophs, we, are, we, we can absorb the nutrient of, from the carcasses of other animals. Uh, we're designed for that. Our pH is about one in our stomach. So we're really scavengers. We have a, a, a pH lower than a hyena. And so the reason why we survived as a, as, a, as a species is because we got smart enough to break open the skulls of carcasses that other animals couldn't break open, and they would leave those uh, remnants, and we would eat the marrow, and we would eat the, the contents of the skull cavity. And so we're, 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 our stomach pH is one, so we can eat rancid stuff, um, whereas chimps, you know, their pH is very, isn't balanced. They have to eat pretty much vegetables. They, they really can't eat much meat product. And we're out there with jackals and hyenas. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, I think a lot of it is to get patients. And so we have this huge swing uh, of issues. Certainly we have a lot of people doing keto and carnivore and paleo and all that stuff, but we have a lot of people going vegan and vegetarian. I don't have any issues with vegetarianism because if you're eating saturated fat, I'm perfectly content because you need it for your brain. Um, you need it to prevent neuroinflammation. I don't have any issues with that. But if you're telling me you're vegan, your sustainability from a vegan diet um, long-term, 80% of people drop off of veganism within three months. And I see a lot of my pain patients that come in that have been vegan and they're sarcopenically wasted. I'm not saying that, you know, if you took a bunch of supplements, you can, you, you can get to being solid with a, being a vegan, but you got to make sure you supplement. And most of my patients aren't um, able to supplement appropriately. So uh, Jen, do you want to share anything about your history with addiction and treatment? Oh, mainly just my, um, my experience with addiction and treatment is from the 1980s and the 1990s. And I don't have any idea. I know that the field has really evolved since then. Um, but one thing I know is that um, certainly from the self-help groups of that I recall, um, you know, social support, one-on-one -on -one counseling, group counseling, 
um, is such a key component. And I just wondered, is that still a key component of treating addiction now or has the focus? Shifted? No, that's, that's, that's a critical component. That's what eliminates that loneliness. Now, what you have to be careful with, um, so we've entered a new paradigm in, in patients care. And here's, here's the issue. So we have a lot of medical assisted treatment protocols, medication assisted. So if you come into me and you're a heroin addict and you want to get off of heroin, I can give you a drug. I can give you Suboxone. I can give you other drugs that will keep you from having a craving and go, keeping you from having a horrendous withdrawal. And I can satiate your brain temporarily while you repair it and then engage you with social support. But the problem is if your social support does not have your best and highest um, behavior involved, they may drag you down the wrong direction. I find sometimes it's just like uh, sending a kid to prison. You send the kid to prison and you put them with other prisoners and all of a sudden they're a better criminal coming out than they were going in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes addiction for my patients, they get way more sophisticated going to rehab. I'm not saying don't go to rehab. I'm saying be careful who your friends are and because you need the social support, but you need to be very, you have to be very cognitively aware of what crap you're going to let come into your brain and the, who the people are because your peer group determines your behavior. Mm -hmm. if, if you're still out there with sketchy people that are um, glor glorifying drug abuse, you're not going to get off. Right. You have to make a commitment. And the thing is, yes, it is a daily struggle for patients. Um, I was going to say, how, how do you address that with patients? What do you find so, is most effective? So I do a combination of medical, medical assisted treatment, medication assisted treatment, plus counseling, plus dietary intervention. And so the dietary intervention that I use is high dose omega-3 fatty acids, four to five, four to six grams a day for about 12 weeks. That starts to change their neuroinflammation. I make sure that I'm checking all of their inflammatory markers. At the same time, I'm making sure that we do sleep restoration. Sleep restoration usually involves getting their GABA up and fixing their gut microbiome. Uh, the vast majority of these patients have terribly destroyed gut microbiome and they, their GABA is gone um, and they run on a glutamate cycle. And so glutamate is a neurotoxic uh, neurotransmitter and I'm trying to get more to the, to the other side. Um, and then, you know, a lot of patients have major PTSDs. So you have to address that PTSD component. I mean, I could spend an hour just going through the PTSD, PTSD protocol, but PTSD is, is a major part of addiction and frequently unrecognized. Um, a lot of people never, a lot of docs um, never recognize that the patient has it. And, and even if they have it, can you mention right. a few examples of how people end up with PTSD? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just saw a patient literally 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, right before I got on this, um, she had been sex trafficked uh, when she was nine years old. I had a, a male patient that was beaten and kept below a staircase um, from the age of like 12 to 16. 
uh, at his mother's house and he finally escaped. So, I mean, look, there are horrible people are horrible people. They do horrible things to other people because they themselves are defective. Um, and so we do a lot of stuff like um, there's a ceremony called Ho'oponopono. It's a it's a quantum cutting ceremony. It's a Hawaiian ceremony of forgiveness. And even though you don't have the the offending creature in front of you, you still have a quantum link to their behavior. Oh, that's so interesting. And so I have them go through the Ho'oponopono to cut those links. You have to do that. Um, you have to re you have to change people's paradigm more than changing them. You change their paradigm. So what do I, what do I mean by change their paradigm? Pretend like you got on a bus. Um, Jen, you're, you're getting on the bus. You sit down in the bus and the bus goes and the bus stops. People get on, people get off. You're minding your own business. You're sitting by the window behind the driver, five seats back. Bus stops, people get on, people get off, bus goes. All of a sudden, the bus stops at a stop and three kids burst onto the bus, run down the, run down the middle of the bus. And then this old, older guy, haggard, kind of gets on the bus and sits in the row in front of you. But the kids are way behind you. And you're like, oh, man, this is going to be strange. The bus goes. The kids are running up and down the aisle. And the bus, the kids are knocking into people. The kids are causing havoc. Um, and, you know, it's kind of upsetting. The bus stops. The bus goes. People get on. People get off. But these kids are, like, screaming in the back. They're yelling. They're fighting with each other. And the father's sitting right in front of you. And you're going to reach forward. And you're going to tap them on the shoulder. What do you want to say? uh oh well keep your kids under control oh, right that's the first and he turns to you and he says i can't believe it their mother just died and i don't know what i'm gonna do what am i gonna do i don't know how to control them and what did that suddenly do it changed your behavior because now your heart broke i right. changed your paradigm in one second and that's what I mean. So you have to recharacterize mm -hmm. uh, patients with their addictions. If you fail to recharacterize where they are by using tools like that, you really don't get anywhere with people's cognitive behavioral stuff. You can't bring out a chart and say, this drug, X mark for you. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Everything, every decision that we make is emotional. And then we rationally back because we think we're scientific it's right. made up yes we're incredibly emotional fragile creatures that create deep connection to other emotionally fragile creatures and we mirror them <laughs> and so we we have to change people's paradigms as as a primary tool so that's kind of some of the stuff you know the, those kind of tools and you have to bring tools to you have to you have to have tools in your tool belt for a variety of different situations you have to be able to deeply and quickly make a connection with these patients who have been rejected by most of medical care because they've been ostracized because they're addicts or they have pain or they're too fat or they've been shamed or they don't want to talk about what happened 
30 years ago or 15 years ago, or they're living with an abusive spouse. You know, you, you have to get through that. And a lot of what I do is this neurobehavioral stuff, but I get to combine it with, I'm a very procedural oriented person. So I get to treat the issue and then I get to work around the penumbra zone, the zone around it to figure out how to keep it from recurring and how to connect meaningfully to these patients. What other kind of um, practitioners do you work with? I, I, I assume you're not doing all of this yourself. I'm just curious. No, no, no. What is your team so we have nurse that? practitioners, we have PAs, we have APs, which is assistant physicians, and we have other physicians. Um, we have psychologists. Um, we've got a team. And so we use in-house resources, and then sometimes we use resources from the outside. Um, and then, you know, it, the resources are pretty good. I mean, we were able to we're able to talk to patients and get communication with them in a way that it hopefully sticks. But you got to realize it's just like, do you know how many times it takes to quit smoking to quit smoking? Do you mean do you know how many quits? How many quits does it take? How many did it take you? Ah, uh, I don't even recall that's how many. So they, it's I think they say eight, right? Fourteen. 14, 14 yeah, is the current. I believe um, it. And do you know what the likelihood is that you're going to lose weight if you go to your primary care following the standard protocol of move more, eat less? Hmm. One chance in 167. Wow. And in my clinic, the chances of you quitting smoking after we get to the appropriate level is about 70 to 80%. Wow. And we can usually do it in one to three visits. And the reason why is we change their relationship with the smoking. So what does that mean? You know, I just gave you the paradigm example. Well, what I do is I have them take some cigarettes. I have them put them in a jar. I have them add some water to it, seal the jar and put it in sunlight for a day or two. Then every time they want to smoke, they open the jar, they take a huff of that. I said, that's what your lungs smell like. Mm. You do that one or two times you go, oh, and that changes your relationship. I'm not saying that you don't need medication. I'm not saying that you don't have other modalities to help, but it changed your relationship because then it gave you, this is what my lungs smell like. This is what people smell off of me. And that ego um, will get people to change behavior faster than anything else. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, you're very interesting and I appreciate you talking to us. Just a little personal about me. I work in a rural part of Northern California and primary care. And it gets to the point where I get really frustrated because I only have a very short time with patients and I'm trying to change behaviors. And like you're discussing the standard medical um, therapies don't seem to be working. I've been practicing 10 years. And you know, even today I'll have patients after 10 years tell me one day, about their abuse as a child. And I've been taking care of them 10 years and didn't know, um, which of course makes me think, what am I doing wrong? That one, they're not telling me. Two, we're not you know, getting anywhere with some of these problems. So I have a couple of questions for you related to that. And one is my sister and I started doing this because we wanted to give people practical, helpful ways to change behaviors and get healthier. Um, so one is, does your, uh, methods that you're using, are they covered by insurance? Because I find sometimes it's really difficult to get enough time with patients. 
And then the other would be, do you have any practical tips for someone who's working with a very poor population with not very many resources that I could um, accomplish in a short visit? Yeah, so there's a couple things. Um, so have you have you done anything with um, Low Carb USA? Have no. you done any of their meetings? Mm -mm. There's one coming up in, um, well, this month, at the end of this month in San Diego. Um, I'm actually teaching at that one. Um, they have amazing resources and those resources are free. So Low Carb USA, um, Society of Metabolic Health, and all of those resources are free. Um, what I do is I pre-record information for my patients about particular subjects. Like, look, this is, I know that you're going to have questions about it. I want you to sit here and watch this video. This is me talking to you while I'm seeing this other patient over here. I'm going to be back in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to go over any questions and then I'm going to reinforce. And I'm going to ask you to tell me what I said. I'm going to ask you to tell me what, what we were trying to convey. So I don't, my mouth gets tired of talking too much and I got a lot of people around me, but at the same time, we're seeing a ton of patients. So right. we use technology to leverage our capacity and I pre-record everything. So every time I get a question that's unique or different, I'll pre-record it and it'll be in my list of, of videos. And then here you go, click, listen to this about loneliness, listen to this about medication assisted treatment, listen to this about facets, listen to this about why do I want you to eat more butter or, you know, the most common asked questions grouped together um, that make logical sense. So I use technology to help me. I have all of my staff. I train them in these techniques. So they've heard this so much coming out of my mouth that they say it themselves and they blurt it out before I can even say anything. So I've trained the staff to do what we need to do. And then at the same time, we give patients handouts that reinforce this stuff and make it so simple that, and so cheap that it makes sense to them. Do you realize that it costs you more money to go to, to Walmart and buy water than it goes to Walmart to buy soda? Soda is half or a quarter the cost of water. So if I was going to Walmart and I lived in Flint, Michigan, and it has a terrible water supply, I go there, I'm going to buy soda if I don't have much money because the soda is cheaper than the water. Mm -hmm. and, and for some odd reason, people, you know, they don't understand that. And they don't understand that that soda has high fructose corn syrup that's been manipulated to a higher fructose level than it's supposed to be. And that super high fructose corn syrup is specifically addictive because it the fructose activates a dopaminergic receptor, whereas the glucose activates the serotonin receptor. And so it, it's a little bit different, you know, approach. I try to get everything written down for them in protocol. Mm -hmm. And then we have websites that have all the information on them, but then we have videos that are tailored specifically to treatment. And then we have the office staff that reinforce it. Um, and then I also see my patients quite frequently because I'm dealing with the risk of addiction, obesity, diabetes, and pain, I'm seeing them every couple of weeks. Uh, and that's the only way that I can reinforce their behavior. Um, 
And so it's a little bit different because you're in a primary care setting. It's going to be much more challenging for you. But once they recognize that you're genuinely trying to help them, they will move heaven and earth. And the, the, they need metrics to tell you tell them why they should listen to you. The thing is, you telling somebody that, hey, you got to lose weight doesn't mean shit to them. They don't care because, first of all, we've normalized being overweight in the United States. You know, a five foot person is supposed to weigh 105 pounds. I've got five foot people that come in here and they're wide as they are tall. And so, you know, they weigh 300 pounds and they think if I can get down to 200, I'm going to be looking good. Well, no, you're still 100 or you're still 90 pounds overweight and you're metabolically unhealthy when you're 15 to 20 pounds overweight. So I have to recharacterize that for them and I have to give them specific guidance over the time frame. So do you think that the because I see so much depression and anxiety, do you think it's related to their dietary intake? Yeah, the diet and the inflammation. Yeah, I mean, it's we've already proven it. In fact, the depression model is wrong. We know that um, there were some great papers published just recently that the classic model of depression with uh, with serotonin reuptake and things of that nature completely wrong. Mm. Um, it's probably gut microbiome driven and our central model is probably wrong. So uh, what do you probably, think about the antidepressants that they're not effective or they're not as effective as we think and okay. they lose effectiveness over time. And so for many patients, especially ones that have pain, the side effects and overdose risk is much higher. And there's limitations in what the, these antidepressants do. Uh, certainly they work acutely, but do they work 30 days later? And should they, should patients be on them for life? Mm -hmm. My, I don't think that they should. I think you should fix their, their gut microbiome. And I think you should fix their heart rate variability. And I think you should fix their neuroinflammation. And then you know, if it, then you should consider putting somebody on long-term treatment. Acutely, I think that they do something. I mean, right now they do something because it's a neuromodulatory response that's temporal. But then, you know, those receptors downregulate very quickly mm -hmm. and then they don't work. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And then you're just boosting and then you're adding more medication and no one's getting better. It's really frustrating. Yeah. 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 Can I ask you about another uh, drug that you didn't touch on? And that's methamphetamine, because yeah. where I live, I feel like that's more of an issue than opiates. Um, yeah, it, it's a quite common problem. I'm 20 miles from the meth capital of the United States, uh, which is southern. I think it's a little town south of uh, south of us, about 20 miles. Uh, it's next to Festus in Farmington. It, it may have the highest drug drug arrest rate hmm. uh, per capita for methamphetamine. And it used to be one of the highest production rates. A lot of the meth now is being produced in Mexico in transshift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so for methamphetamine, it's harder to break. Uh, it's a greater dopaminergic response. It's a 10 X dopaminergic response. Uh, sex is only two X and methamphetamine is 10 X or greater. Uh, cocaine is a little bit less. And so as in terms of Patients getting a um, acute dopaminergic response, not the tonic level, but the acute, uh, that's one of the greatest. And the higher the dopaminergic response acutely, the greater the depression once it wears off, because you get that acute spike and then it goes down 
and it goes negative. And then you get that terrible feeling after you're coming off of math. And that's why people use math six, 10, 12, 14 times a day, because they're constantly bouncing between the highs and the lows, and they just crave when they're at their bottom. So how do we address that? First of all, methamphetamine is very much more dangerous of a drug than heroin is, as in terms of addressing it for um, getting people off. Um, there's a variety of medications that we use. One of the ones that I use is clonidine and the other is baclofen. Um, I try to occupy some of those GABA receptors. And another one that I occasionally will use, um, occasionally will use some benzodiazepines. Uh, but that's rare. Um, I try to stay away from benzos because those can be just as bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find that most of these patients that are on methamphetamine also are using fentanyl. Um, and they're also using eight other drugs you don't even know about. And they might be using drugs you can't even pick up on your urine tox. Um, and unless you test these patients, you're not going to know. You can't look at a patient and tell if and when they use a particular substance. Um, and in primary care, unless you test them, you're never going to know. They're not going to volunteer. They're just going to look like they're ragged and you know burning candles at both ends. But for all you know, they're doing meth. So I, I think that patients should be routinely tested with any index of suspicion, especially if the population um, that you're in is high. If their paradigm is a lot of meth, then I'd be testing everybody not with high frequency, but I'd still be testing them because you gotta, you gotta validate where they are in that population mix if that population is a high meth use. Um, so I, I start with medication and try to get substitution um, that way and try to get them away from their friends who are doing meth. Um, people doing meth typically because they're so dopaminergically driven feel invincible. They feel like this drug is making them Superman. They don't realize that their performance is terrible. And so that's, you know, you have to get them to recognize that their performance, that what, what's, what, they're, what they're suffering. And sometimes that requires an intervention with, this is what's going to happen to your life. This is what's going to happen to your family. This is what's going to happen to you. Uh, it's not all about the positive. You have to have them recognize the negative as well. Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what we do. Combination of medication and then uh, a lot of behavioral issue and then frequently testing to see their compliance. I trust no one. So I trust, I test everyone. Hmm. Well, you can't trust people often. Yeah. And if they're lying to you, they won't follow the plan of care. Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing, but sometimes they, they're lying to themselves uh, and that's yeah. the thing. That's what I frequently find. Well, doc, I just, you know, I do a little weed. Oh, well, and, and then my, my drug dealer puts some meth in it for me. <laughs> and I love going to that drug dealer. That's so, an interesting thing to bring up because weed in California and Oregon is legal. I don't know about where you are in Missouri. It, it's uh, legal, but they, but it's expensive going to the dispensary. And so people still get their weed from their local drug dealer. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about that as a substance of addiction? It is a substance of addiction, but it's way weaker mm -hmm. until they re-engineer it. As, they, as we re-engineer it, then it'll get stronger and it'll become truly addictive. A lot of the, um, a lot of the people that 
went to the from the cigarette industry for addiction, moved to the food industry for addiction, and they're moving from the food industry to the marijuana industry for addiction. These people are very skilled at what they do, and they know how to create addictions, and so they're really good at it. It's scary. Um, and so what's going to happen is you're going to see that um, THC concentrations will go up. That's not the only compound in marijuana that has significance. There's all kinds of additional adjuvant agents that are in there that are going to be very significant. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have to, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Mm -hmm. Where do your patients in recovery find the social support that's most helpful to them in helping them move forward in health and recovery? Some examples, um, maybe? Do people find support in church? Do they join? Yeah, that's the most common. Uh, church groups, um, other social support groups. Um, you know, it may not be per se a, it may not be like a, a formal group that go, gets together and, and goes, goes through their steps. It may be a, like I have a lot of my PTSD addiction patients volunteering at the wolf sanctuary and they get together and they're with their other alpha predator friends, which are wolves. And uh, both of them get to experience the hypersympathetic drive of having fear of the outside world and they calm each other down. Wow. Um, and so I, we do kind of that kind of stuff to, depending on what the patient does. Uh, I've come into my clinic in the morning sometime and I swear to God, we have like a, a Bible revival going on because they've taken over the front lobby um, because they're having a group meeting of five or 10 people that go to different churches, but now they're sharing their experience. So that kind of stuff. I mean, it becomes a, who do you get along with more than what is the, what is, what is a particular technique? Well, Dr. Pada, I don't want to take too much of your time. We could probably ask you questions all day. <laughs> I don't yeah, no know. Worries when you need to um, finish yeah. this phone call. Is there anything in particular that you would like to share with us that you might think might be helpful for us or our audience? I think the number one thing I would share with people is, look, when we dose medications, we dose medications by milligrams and micrograms. That's a thousandth of a gram. We eat food by the kilogram, which is a thousand grams. What do you think has more impact on the human body? Milligrams or kilograms? And so, you know, if you're consuming all of this food and you're doing it all day long, that's going to have a bigger impact than any medication that I can conjure up and give to you in the milligram dosage. I recognize that my medications are refined and special and all that stuff. But still, if you constantly are in that soup or sea of, of kilograms of bad food, those milligrams are not going to do much for you. And so I want you to fix the bigger picture. And then we can use these milligrams of little things to, to kind of tweak it and help. But you got to fix your dietary intake. That's the number one thing. It's two thirds of our healthcare expenditure in the United States. It costs us $1.7 trillion a year. And if we can get people to be non-diabetic, we've made a massive difference. If people to lose their weight, we've made a massive difference. If we can get rid of neuroinflammation, you improve school performance. You improve school performance. They don't get criminally involved. You create stable families. You change the epigenetics and the methylation. And 
you you change people's behavior generation to generation to generation. Mm-hmm. But if we're all sitting around eating Fritos, which I'm not making fun of Fritos because I like Fritos, but I can't eat them, um, then we've got a problem. Um, and so, you know, we, we can't, we got to get away from this processed food crap that's mm-hmm. synthetic and go back to eating real food, eating like our great, great grandmothers. That's really good advice. Mm-hmm. Any other questions for me? Jen? No, this was such an interesting conversation. And yes, I I could talk for another uh, several hours. I I have one question if you have time. And that would be, what brought you to the work you're doing now? Like when you finished medical school and you came out of, you know, as a practicing physician, where did you start and how did you end up where you are today? All right. So (laughs) that'll take more than one second, but let me give you the short of it. I grew up in North India. I grew up on the Pakistani border and I'm Sikh. Um, And so most of my friends were killed when I was eight or nine years old. We got hit by a mustard gas bomb. Uh, The Pakistanis launched a bomb in the middle of the night. We lived on the top of the hill, but my friends lived at the bottom of the hill. Mustard gas settles. And when it exploded, all of the animals and people died. So I lived in a very tumultuous environment. And so I'm used to um, chaos. We eventually relocated to the United States and I was the only brown kid in a black school and I couldn't speak a word of English. I lived in the, in the ghetto, in the urban core. Um, and eventually when I got to high school, we moved out to the county and now I'm the only brown kid with a turban in an all white school. And I got to see discrimination on both ends. Um, and you know, I buried myself into studies and ended up going to medical school when I was 17, um, got out and I went to Chicago, did trauma surgery there, decided surgery wasn't as fun as I thought. I liked the procedures, but it wasn't cerebral. So I did anesthesia. Then I did pediatric anesthesia. Then I did pain and ended up getting bored in an addiction. And so I've always wanted to give back to my communities that, that I started with. And so that's why I'm in the urban core. I have a a strong mission and purpose to help the people that helped me when I was growing up. Um, I'm literally two miles from the urban ghetto that I grew up in when I was nine. And so, and that's where my patients come from. Uh, And so I'm always trying to figure out how is it that I can help the people that helped me when I first got here. So that's, that's kind of my mission. That's amazing. It sounds like it's incredible work. Yeah. That's, can, and you, it's fun. can you let people know where they can find out more about you, about the work that you do, your websites, any social media that presence that yeah, you have? I would recommend that they go through um, the, the, the number one site I would recommend is go to reversediabetes.md, www.reversediabetes.md. Um, I think that that's in, that's a good launch pad for almost everything that we do. Um, but I think that has a bunch of free protocols on it. It has a bunch of free videos and from a dietary intake, that's a great launch pad, uh, addiction. I have something called www.addictionology.center. And for the pain, we have something called PainMD.tv. Um, and so that's kind of the medical end of what I do. And people usually reach out to me through that. And then we can figure out what to do from there. Um, we, you know, 
I recommend if people are reaching out to us and they're trying to figure out what to do, use those resources to have a discussion with somebody local that's going to help treat you. Um, because that that's what it really takes. You you get you got to get like direct hands-on local treatment. And there are all kinds of there are all kind of biohacks that we do to 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 short circuit things to move things along faster and to and to change people's paradigms quicker. Um, and a lot of that information is on those sites. And generally speaking, you had talked earlier about supplements. It's pretty safe bet to give people omega threes just yeah. to reduce inflammation. Anybody could be taking that, correct? Yeah, I mean, the only risk you really have is if somebody's on Eliquis, like a blood thinner, oh, and uh, you give you a high oh, dose of omega three, it may increase their bleeding. Eliquis is the one I worry about more than the others. It what it does is it omega threes restructure your um, the membranes of your cells and make them more fluid and increase your risk of bleeding slightly, but that's the main risk. But honestly, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're being managed and somebody's watching you, mm -hmm. it, it's pretty safe. Yeah. Um, other than that, I, you really rarely have problems, but you, you know, there's, there's protocols that we, I want people to follow and most of them are available for free right on our site. Just download it. We don't pepper you with an email. We don't call you again, we download it, you use it. If you have a question, you can call, we'll, we'll get, we'll get on the phone with you for a minute or two. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we provide that for free just because if somebody has a question, we want to help them. Mm -hmm. um, and then usually we want them to find somebody closer that'll help co-manage and figure them out. Well, it sounds like you're doing incredible work and I'll spend some time looking at those resources. Cool. I appreciate that. Thank you for right. taking time out of your busy day. We really appreciate your insight. We really appreciate your time. Right. Thank you. Very thank interesting. You so stuff. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure Thanks. getting to know you. Continue the great work. Yeah. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. So Bye. we're Two Sisters House with Dr. Pata. Thank you very much, Dr. Pata. Have a great day. Bye, everybody.